This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. We're dropping an extra episode this week, and that's because there's been an important development in the conflict in the Middle East. This past weekend, news emerged that three U.S. service members were killed in a suspected Iran-backed drone attack in Jordan. These are the first deaths of American troops under fire since October 7, when Hamas attacked Israel and sparked what seems to be a widening regional conflict. Almost immediately, there was pressure on the White House to react. Hit Iran now, tweeted Senator Lindsey Graham. Hit them hard. Then there was Senator Tom Cotton, who said that anything short of a direct attack on Iran will, quote, confirm Joe Biden as a coward unworthy of being commander-in-chief, end quote. FP's Jack Detch has done some terrific reporting on this, and I urge you to read his work on our website or in the show notes here. The attack has real implications for what might happen next in the Middle East and also how things might escalate further if the White House does retaliate. Later this week, we're going to bring together two Iran experts, Vali Nasser and Sanam Vakil, to game this out for us. But for this episode, I spoke with Ian Bremer, one of the world's top geopolitical risk experts and a past FP Live guest. Ian says this attack and the loss of American lives represents a red line for the White House, something he says senior administration officials have told him directly in the past. This is the nightmare scenario. Ian and I discuss that and also his company's top risks report. Every year, the Eurasia Group puts out a list of the top 10 risks in the world. The Middle East was already very high up on that list. So was the war in Ukraine. We will discuss those, but also the very top risk on the list. And that's the risk of an America at war with itself. This is an election year after all. As always, if you like the podcast, rate us, share it with a friend, or try us on video on foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to ask questions too, as you know, but you need to subscribe first. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. All right, let's dive in. Ian, welcome back. Hey, good to see you, my friend. Great to have you on. So um, just to kick off on a newsy note, I have to start with the Middle East. You've been predicting escalation for a while uh, in the conflict there. And now it looks like we're getting it. Three American service members were killed, two dozen more injured by a drone attack in Jordan. And these are the first deaths of American troops under fire since October 7. I guess the obvious question right now is, will the White House respond? I mean, it's already facing pressure to do so. No, I mean, I think the obvious question is, how will the White House respond? There, There will be military response. That's already clear. The two pieces of backdrop here, uh, first from the top risk report, our our view was that it was inevitable that the war in the Middle East was going to expand significantly beyond what we were watching at the beginning of the year. I wish that weren't true. There were just far too many variables that the Americans do not have the ability to constrain. Uh, 
And we've seen that with the Houthis. We've seen that with Iranian proxies more broadly. We haven't seen that as much with widespread anger and violence from Muslim populations around the world. But that, that's another avenue. So that's the first point. This, this should not be a surprise to anyone. Um, the second point is what we saw over the weekend has been the nightmare scenario for the Biden administration. What they've been most worried about is an attack in the region that kills and injures significant numbers of American servicemen and women. And, and that's what we had on the Jordan-Syria border, three dead, 34 that we know of injured some seriously by drone strikes. Um, and, you know, the Americans have defenses. In this case, those defenses somehow failed. But also, I mean, the attacks have just been ongoing and American efforts to deter them have been wholly inadequate to the task. Part of that is that the Iranians understand that Biden really, really, really doesn't want a direct fight with Iran. And so they have felt like they can have their proxies in the region on a longer leash uh, without risking uh, a kind of war against them that they clearly don't want. And now we are significantly closer precisely to that. Now, I, it's useful that the Iranians immediately put out a statement saying they had nothing to do with this. In other words, um, I mean, they didn't condemn it, but, uh, but they certainly tried to distance themselves from it. Uh, that's credible insofar as the Iranians are not giving direct orders to these proxies. But we all know uh, that they don't have large amounts of weapons stockpiles. It is the ongoing and continual um, weapons deliveries that the Iranians are providing all of these groups while they are attacking civilian shipping and American bases. And in fact, we already had two U.S. Uh, special teams, uh, special forces members uh, die in an effort to interdict an Iranian ship uh, that was going to Yemen uh, with weapons. So, I mean, it's it's not plausible that the Iranians aren't involved. They're not innocents in all of this. And the Americans are going to have to respond. It, it's, it's inconceivable. It has nothing to do with the election year. It's inconceivable that the Americans would not respond. This has been described to me by senior officials in the Biden administration before it happened as a red line. This very scenario is a red line. Now, does that mean that the Americans have to strike Iranian territory directly? No, doesn't mean that. It could mean that, but it doesn't mean that. But certainly, um, I would be very surprised if we did not have strikes against leadership of the groups uh, that were seen to be involved, group or groups, um, as well as against some Iranian assets, direct Iranian assets, um, mm -hmm. military capabilities, the IRGC advisors, this kind of thing. And maybe, maybe that's enough to back the Iranians off a bit. I doubt it. I, I do not yet think we are close to peak in terms of conflict around the Middle East, unfortunately, unfortunately. And there are two sides to this. So as you game out the possibility of a broader escalation or a prolonged uh, conflict, you said that obviously the Biden administration really doesn't want direct conflict with Iran. But what about the opposite side? So the consensus seems to have been that the Iranians also uh, don't want uh, a major escalation. They don't want to get involved in a direct conflict with the West. 
How do you think they are gaming out um, what might happen this week? I suspect that um, they were at least a little surprised by uh, just how much bloodshed there was on the American side. And uh, I, I do suspect that there will be at least some Iranian leaders right now that are thinking, you know, maybe uh, another attack like that is not the best idea. That doesn't mean they're going to stop harassing ships, doesn't mean there's not, they're going to stop attacking bases, uh, but maybe they'll be a little bit more cautious. Maybe, it's possible. Uh, but again, keep in mind, they don't have uh, direct control of these groups. And I'd be stunned if the Iranians said, okay, we're going to stop providing military support now. I, I don't see that. And remember, you know, there, there is the Trump administration response uh, in context as well, which is the U.S. did virtually nothing despite the Saudis and the Emiratis screaming bloody murder for months in response to Iranian strikes and Iranian proxy strikes against them in the region, um, including that that really bold attack against the largest refinery facility in the world, Abqaiq. And then in response to a comparatively small strike, but that did uh, injure uh, American troops, I believe it was in a northern Iraqi base, uh, Trump orders basically enough is enough and orders the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, which is quite something. I think it's inconceivable that Biden would take a step as dramatic as that. But in response to that, the Iranians were really angry and there were still a couple of small strikes against U.S. forces that led to some injuries, but there was nothing spectacular at all. In fact, generally speaking, you'd say, okay, that deflated the Iranians significantly in their behavior because their bluff was called, called decisively by someone that might just be willing, if they kept going, to like decide on a policy of regime change in Iran or carpet bombing of Tehran. I mean, like they they really they certainly thought that was possible. They don't think that's possible with Biden. And you know, that is upside and downside of dealing with someone who you really can't game out. But the point is we are in an election right now. I'm sure you've already seen a number of Republican senators uh, very supportive of Trump coming out and saying, hit Tehran hard now. I saw that from like Lindsey Graham. I think I saw it from Senator Cornyn. I've seen a bunch of people saying that there'll be more of that. And I expect we'll see something like that from Trump himself. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think that this is, again, we're in an environment where oil prices are comparatively low. It hasn't really affected the U.S. economy. There are a lot of reasons for that that have very little to do with the Middle East right now. Um, and so it, it there's still room for um, a lot of um, incremental escalation before people start really having the bejesus scared out of them. We are not yet, in my view, we are not yet at that point. And, and that's why I think that we're still likely to see escalation. F final point in response to the other side of this, it's not just that the Iranians don't want all-out war with the U.S., though that's true. The Iranians also uh, don't want to be on the wrong side, the completely wrong side of the Gulf states. Because remember, they now have functional relations with the Saudis, with the Emiratis, which they did not have before, facilitated by the Chinese, but it was the Iranians and the Gulf states that wanted this. And they certainly don't want to ruin that. They don't want to be in a position uh, where suddenly they've got a big fight on their hands against everybody with power in the region. Um, mm -hmm. Israel is fine. Leading the axis of resistance is fine. 
Uh, it's not like the Saudis have any particular, they, they couldn't be in that position. They have no love for Hamas at all. They don't want to be the ones that are supporting like the Arab street. Iran has an easier time with that position, but they can only play it so far. So mm -hmm. again, I do think there are reasons why we should not expect this to be a full on Middle East war between the Americans and the Iranians. But the closer we get, the more likely mistakes can be made, the more likely escalation is harder to contain. And, and I, you know, I, that's a, I, it wouldn't be my baseline, but it's a real risk. Mm. And of course, the problem with proxies is you don't control them. So you have plausible deniability, but um, very little uh, degree of control. Let's jump to another war also in your report. This is the one in Ukraine. And you pointed out that Ukraine will be, quote unquote, de facto partitioned uh, this year. Explain that. Where do you see it headed? The U.S. and its allies um, are working with Ukraine to, to flip that war to a almost purely defensive posture, at least insofar as territorial gains are construed. So there, there's really no possibility in the foreseeable future of Ukraine getting its land back, its remaining land back, the 18 percent of their territory that is presently illegally occupied by Russia. And, and I'm not in any way suggesting this is an okay thing. It is not, it is completely unacceptable. Um, but we live with a lot of things that are completely unacceptable. I mean, North Korea having a nuclear weapons program is completely unacceptable. You know, we we don't recognize it, but it, it exists. It ain't going anywhere. Um, I mean, Assad running Syria, the Taliban running Afghanistan, Maduro in Venezuela. So, I mean, Ukraine getting partitioned is like that. And they're not going to recognize it. And we're not going to recognize it. But it's going to happen. And so then the question is, well, how do we how do we have a sustainable outcome? And, and certainly, how do we have one that looks like a win? Especially if the Americans are no longer willing or capable to provide ongoing critical baseline aid to the Ukrainians, which is now a very real question. I mean, former President Trump has come out publicly. And he is going to get the nomination. So he has much more power today than he had a month ago. And he's going to have a lot more power by March than he has now. And said, I don't want any deal on a border for Ukraine aid. Now, a lot of that is because the border is a useful issue for him to campaign on. But uh, a lot of that is also that he doesn't like Zelensky and doesn't want him to have more support. Remember, he's the guy that said, I'm president. I'm going to end the war in one day. Well, what does that mean? That means he demands uh, that Zelensky accept present border, Russian annexation in return for ceasefire. That's, that is what he wants. That is completely not feasible for the Ukrainians. And if that's what happens, if that's where we go and nothing else stops in the interim, then you're going to have a very divided NATO and, and EU where Orban will side with Trump where FICO in Slovakia may well side with Trump, and where many movements inside Europe, um, like the Alternatives for Deutschland and the former National Front in France and others who are getting more powerful on the back of June elections in Europe, uh, will also side with Trump. And so for me, this is becoming a, a potential existential threat for the cohesiveness of NATO and the EU. So it's a very, very divisive. Now, um, it's not inevitable, and there are things that can happen that could slow or prevent that outcome. For example, Biden now has the legal authority to seize Russia's frozen assets. He doesn't want to act by himself. 
uh, but he's trying to push the Europeans to do the same. And that's hundreds of billions of dollars that could be up, uh, applied um, to Ukraine's defense and ongoing uh, survival. And um, I suspect that um, if it turns out the Americans have no additional legislative support for cash for Ukraine and everyone's getting desperate, uh, that that's what's going to happen. And the U.S. and the Europeans can both move in that direction. Now, there are problems with legal precedent of seizing that money. And you could see a whole bunch of other countries that decide that maybe having your cash in dollars or in developed government banks are difficult. And so it, the, the costs could be structural, but but the cost for Ukraine of not doing that could be existential. So that's one way at it. Uh, another way you see the Europeans are now basically threatening to destroy Hungary's economy if they veto further aid for Ukraine. That is a very, very strong move. Again, born of some desperation as they see that the Ukrainians are running out of money and have already have weapons shortages, that will help. That will make a difference. Might the United States be willing to provide with other European states some hard security guarantees for the 82% of Ukrainian territory that they still occupy? Um, and could that be done before the 75th anniversary of NATO in Washington this coming summer? Maybe. Uh, so there are, there are mechanisms that will not get Ukraine back their land, but will allow Ukraine to have a trajectory, an economic, a diplomatic, and a security trajectory that frankly would be more positive long-term than what they would have expected pre-February 24th, 2022. Mm. And, and ultimately, I mean, is that a win for Ukraine? I mean, after 8 million people displaced and hundreds of thousands of casualties and tens of thousands of war crimes. I, I don't think it's appropriate to call that a win for Ukraine, but it's not a loss for Ukraine. Um, I, I think it's an outcome that the West can feel they accomplished what was necessary. For and I Ukraine. think the challenge there will be to see if Ukraine and Zelensky can sell that to the people, given the sort of position they've taken on long, and also the position the West has taken on long, yeah. which is that, you know, Ukrainians have to decide for themselves when they are ready um, to approach a settlement. But Ian, sort of underpinning all of this, um, I think, is the what you've described as the third war. Um, well, can we just take one second on Ukraine, though? Because I mean, yeah, you, you made a point that I think is very important there, which is selling the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Americans and the Europeans need to take some responsibility here. They have waited until they've had a losing hand. You know, it's always easier to get an outcome that you want when you have momentum, when you've got the wind in your sails. And they were reluctant to do that. They didn't want to have the difficult conversation. I've had those conversations at cabinet level with the Americans and with the Europeans consistently. And so I always like, well, I'm a three more months, six more months. Let's see how they do. Now it's much worse. Now it's much harder. Now Zelensky will end up in a more difficult position, right? That That is part of the problem um, is that uh, there wasn't leadership um, to, to get to a conclusion. And, and of course, Putin knows that. And Putin absolutely knows that. Putin's been counting on that all the way through, all the way through. Anyway, Robert, to you. 
Yeah. So uh, amid all of that, the third war um, that you've been describing in your report, and that's the one that America is having with itself. And, you know, I feel like we're both in the US right now, but you travel around the world. And this is the thing that everyone wants to talk about. Everyone around the world is just immobilized in a sense, waiting to see how the American election plays out, waiting to see whether democracy itself is called into question in the United States and what it means for the international order, what it means for a range of conflicts around the world, for business around the world. So talk to us a little bit about how you see that risk uh, play out this year. I think that this is, well, first of all, you're right that it's what everyone's talking about. And it wasn't a few months ago. Um, I, I think that there are a lot of leaders that now understand that Trump can absolutely be the next president of the U.S. They didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to see it. They now understand it. They're now at least starting to prepare for it. That's important. And, and, you know, you and I can talk about how we're handicapping these things. I think if the election were today, Trump would win fairly easily. I do not have a strong, I have very little confidence about what's going to happen in November. It's it's nine months away, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. a 10 month, it's it's a long time. Uh, but, but, you know, to look at uh, the implications, um, we need to recognize how different this environment is from 2016 and 2020. So it is not like, oh, we got through one Trump term before, we can get through another Trump term now. It's not like that. And it's not like that, I think, for two very important reasons. First is that the stakes are actually much higher. Um, the, the priorities of a Trump presidency would be very different. Those priorities would be, and have to be for him, to undo all of the indictments the convictions which are coming, investigations against him. That has to be his top priority. Um, and in return, he will want to ensure that that cannot happen again. And that means politicizing the Department of Justice, the FBI under it, the IRS, other organizations, putting his loyalists in place and using those organizations to go after those that in his view unjustly went after him. And so, I mean, that is a new McCarthyism. That is a significant change in how we think about rule of law in the United States, how we think about the power of incumbency and a structural erosion of the ability to have free and fair transition um, of power, which is kind of core to a democracy. Is that, does that mean the U.S. becomes a dictatorship? No, no. But it, the U.S. is no longer a functional uh, representative democracy. It's something more like Poland, Hungary. I mean, I'm, I'm Peru. I mean, I'm not shitting here. I think that's that is what we're talking about. And and certainly, I know many senior advisors to Biden that believe that they would face legal jeopardy if Trump wins this time around. No one was talking or thinking like that in 2020. Nobody was. So that is an issue. That is an issue. You kind of you're past the point of no return if he wins after all of the cases, investigations, indictments, effort to put him in jail, irrespective of what you think about those cases, right? I'm just, that's just, this is just the analytic point. That's number one. Number two is that the geopolitical environment today is radically different than it was in 2016 or 2020. When Trump was president last time around, there weren't any wars going on. Uh, and the US-China relationship was okay, 
right? It was much more stable. Those things aren't true today. Uh, I mean, if Trump becomes president, there will be two major wars going on um, in his presidency immediately. Uh, and he will have very different views of how to respond to those wars in ways that will be deeply problematic for American allies. And, you know, I, I think the impact of that on the global order is incredibly destabilizing. Uh, again, in a way that Trump was not the first time around. We already talked about the impact on Ukraine, the impact on China. You know, he's talked about the possibility and, and so have others of a, a 60 percent across the board tariff, which, you know, would throw the U.S. in recession, frankly. Um, but uh, and I don't think it's feasible. But the fact is the Chinese at this point privately are deeply concerned about what a Trump administration would mean for them. Now, maybe they'd fold. Maybe that would usher in a new deal between the United States and China. It's absolutely possible. Um, we saw that with the USMCA under Trump. Not, everything is not bad, but the level of uncertainty and volatility is massive. And the idea that one of these things wouldn't break, that seems insane. Like something big will break if there's that much uncertainty and volatility in an environment of a new Trump presidency. Um, especially a new Trump presidency where a lot of the very capable people around him last time will probably not be there this time around. So Pompeo did not endorse Trump. And Trump's not talking to him right now. Uh, and hey, Trump is mercurial. So I mean, we don't know if he's going to come back or not. I mean, he wants to come back. And ultimately, I think there's a shot. But there are no guarantees, right? Um, and I think that, I mean, right now, my bet for Secretary of State, it's very early. But if Trump wins, I'd say Rick Grinnell, uh, personally. Mm. Very different, you know, sort of policy orientation than you would get from a Mattis or a Pompeo. Um, so again, I just think it's a very different environment this time around. And all of those things, yeah, I mean, they are, there are many allies of the US, not all, not India, they think they'll be perfectly fine. Mexico will find a way to get along, they have no choice. But the Europeans are panicked over this. The Japanese and South Koreans are panicked over this. And those are important U.S. allies. In fact, I mean, I, I would probably argue they're the most important U.S. allies, really, you know, other than Canada, uh, probably yeah. the most important U.S. allies. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, and that's foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a very good discount. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. We're being flooded by questions from viewers around the world, and I want to tick off a few of them. Uh, Manuel Reinhardt um, wants to ask you, how might the decline of uh, the legitimacy of the U.S. and Western nations, as evidenced by their global stances on Gaza and Ukraine, impact the stability of the international order? There are a few other subscriber questions along similar lines, and some of them, Ian, are referring to an essay that you wrote for us about a month ago. Um, this was with uh, Jared Cohen uh, of Goldman Sachs. It's titled The Global Credibility Gap, 
and we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I thought it was a superb essay. And basically, you were making the point that, you know, America's relative power is declining. China's relative power is increasing, but not to the degree that it's filled the gap uh, created by America's relative decline. So the result is a global vacuum of sorts. And the international order then feels like a ship without a captain. How long do you think that period can last for? Well, it's a very specific argument because we're talking about soft power, influence, and legitimacy. We're not talking about America's military power, which is not declining, in Correct. my view. We're not talking uh, about America's economic power and the role of the dollar, which is roughly the same today as it was 20 years ago. Uh, in fact, uh, I would argue that China's legitimacy on that front has eroded uh, significantly in the last few years. And part of the reason the US and China are now working more closely together is because China's concerned about that. Um, the role of the yen, the role of the euro in today's geopolitical environment are also decreasing. So it's not that. It's But American credibility, right, uh, is, is indispensable to applying American economic and military power in a way that countries can count on it for good or for bad from their perspectives over consistently over a period of time. That has eroded dramatically. So allies around the world are saying, geez, we, we just don't know if we should be if we should be counting on the word of the United States. And we need to find a way to hedge that. Some can and some can't. But but certainly it is no longer a, well, there are counted friends, so we should figure out a way to get this done. No, absolutely. That's not the conversation that's happening. And, you know, this is in a sense, this is a knock-on effect of the G0 world that I've been writing about since 2012. Now, the G0 was this idea that we don't have global leadership because the United States will increasingly not be willing and able to be the global policeman, the architect of uh, global trade, uh, and the promoter of global values. And what the credibility issue is that inside the United States, um, a massive, a fundamental disagreement on what the Americans actually stand for have eroded legitimacy uh, of the U.S. globally. Like, does the U.S. support free trade? Does the U.S. support uh, reliable immigration? Does the United States, I mean, support um, democracy uh, for itself and around the world? And what does that mean? Um, human rights. Uh, and you're right. I mean, when I look at Ukraine, where I think the Americans were on the right side of that fight, and and by the way, I, I would not argue that the, the whole world was against the West on Ukraine at all. In fact, um, the world voted with the West in terms of condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What they didn't support were the sanctions, because they saw that the sanctions were going to hurt them economically, and yet the West wasn't willing do to provide a lot didn't want to pri didn't prioritize them on things like climate change and the impact that is caused by climate change on their countries even though the americans are responsible for most of the climate change with the west historically increasingly now china too so their view was yeah you're we, we're with you on rule of law in ukraine but why should we support you economically on this when you don't care about us fair point i get it um, and furthermore, you're really prioritizing Ukraine, which is a bunch of white people in Europe, but we don't feel like you care as much about these issues when they're close to us. Fair point, right? Fair point. Um, now, uh, I would argue that Ukraine actually mattered more to the global South 
because of the knock-on impact of food and fertilizer and energy export um, that meant that the uh, UN and Turkey in providing for a Black Sea deal had more impact on starvation and, and reducing starvation around the global South than any of the conflicts that they had been focusing on uh, that were in the global South. But nobody wants to really talk about that. That's, that's hard. We, you and I can have that conversation, but that's, a, that's hard for a, twi a Twitter uh, yeah. post or an X post or whatever the hell they are. Um, the um, X post, ooh, that's, uh, that, that kind of works, <laughs> right? Backward looking right X it. post, I like it. We should use that. Um, so, uh, but, but when I think about uh, Israel, uh, Hamas, now there, the, the US and Germany and the UK, France-ish, are very isolated. Um, and and there, some of that is far more Muslims in the world than Jews. So numbers, um, far, far more. And some of that is the way that's played out in TikTok and having more political impact, particularly on young people that digest news that way, overwhelmingly more pro-Palestinian than pro-Israel. Some of that is anti-Semitism. But some of that um, is the reality of tens of thousands of Palestinians killed, a majority of whom the U.S. government estimates are civilians. Um, and, and part of that is that when the U.S. first supported the creation of Israel, Israel was the ultimate underdog that had just gone through a Holocaust and as a consequence was very aligned with American values, you know, of like protecting these people that no one had, been done, had done anything for and that were facing extinction. Uh, and we're going to give them land and we're going to make sure they have a government um, and 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 it be, it's going to be a democracy uh, and and in a region where there wasn't any democracy. Uh, and that felt really good for the Americans and for the West uh, in the early days. But uh, but today uh, you have in the last year, an Israeli government uh, led a far right government led by Netanyahu, which has taken steps to undermine the functionality of their own democracy with their so-called judicial reform efforts. Um, they have taken land illegally from Palestinians in the West Bank. And of course, they also were in the best geopolitical position of their history with deals with the Emiratis and Bahrain um, and Morocco and coming soon the Saudis and nuclear weapons and the strongest military in the region. In other words, Israel was no longer the underdog they weren't the 16-rank Cinderella story that we all root for in March Madness. They were the heavy, heavy home favorite. And then, suddenly, that doesn't align uh, with what a lot of Americans think about. And, and certainly uh, is problematic in terms of how much of the world uh, thinks about U.S. support. Uh, for that country. So I think that's become a much more complicated story for the U.S. And I say that as someone who is still, who still believes that the U.S. relationship with Israel, the alliance with Israel is actually valuable and should not be thrown under the bus. I, I absolutely believe that. But, but uh, Netanyahu um, has done immense damage uh, to that relationship, in my view, um, and to Israel's strength uh, globally, in my view. Um, and, uh, and and also in the majority uh, view of the Israeli people. And the faster he can be removed with his far-right government, the better for everyone involved. So this conversation has been quite dire so far, Ian. So I'm going to try and move us to a spot of good news for a minute. And who'd have thought it? 
U.S. China. Uh, I think you said this uh, at a dinner we were at recently, um, and Fareed Zakaria wrote a column on it over the, over the past weekend. But Taiwan has elections. It elects a person Beijing sees as a separatist, and remarkably, there is a reaction from China, but not anywhere near as bad as we thought. Are talks between Washington and Beijing finally doing their job? Um, I think that those talks are very helpful. Um, I, I think what we have right now is an effort by both countries to build strong high-level relations across the board on uh, diplomatically, especially between Wang Yi and Jake Sullivan, uh, which have been regular and, and quite extensive, um, and also at the military-to-military level, um, between uh, the on the economic side, of course, on the climate side. Uh, the Chinese are looking to do more on the people-to-people -people side. This is across the board. This is essentially a, a recreation of the old strategic and economic dialogue by another name, organically, that uh, will not only create some connective tissue that values the interdependence between the two countries, uh, but also helps to ensure that when there are areas of conflict, and there are, of course, on Taiwan, as you mentioned, but also in technology and also in the thousands of Chinese companies that are on the, the watch list um, that are being sanctioned in various ways by the United States, that those conflicts can be discussed appropriately. Both sides can air their views and escalation uh, need not uh, develop, uh, certainly no inadvertent escalation. So, I mean, I think in this environment, if we were to see, first of all, we'd be much less likely to see a Chinese balloon come over the US, but if we did, it would be resolved and handled uh, much more uh, effectively. Uh, than it was uh, a year ago, February. I think that's a big deal. So yeah, the US-China relationship is in a meaningfully more stable place. It's not an entente. It's not like suddenly there's a trust between the two countries. Um, a big part of that is because the Americans just do not want that fight, given everything else going on, the election and all of the geopolitical instability. But uh, I think at least as big of a part, maybe a bigger part, is that the Chinese see how badly they um, have uh, lost their geopolitical position in their own backyard, given the Quad, given AUKUS, given South Korea, Japan, US, given the Philippines now offering all these military bases, given Indonesia improving status of their relations with Japan and the United States, the China levels, given, of course, the, the direct India relationship with the US, um, as a counterbalance to Chinese control of the BRICS. So for all of those reasons, and the fact that the Chinese economy is just not doing well, and a lot of people are de-risking, a lot of people are decoupling even, um, and a lot of investment, foreign direct investment is going away, this capital flight too. So the Chinese, I think, you know, it's not like Xi Jinping doesn't get that information. He, he does get that advice. Uh, he doesn't get bold assertions from his advisors that they should you know, suddenly throw a bazooka at their fiscal environment. No, he doesn't get that. But but he understands um, everything I just said, Xi Jinping is much more aware of than you and I are. And that's a, that's a very useful thing because it creates more willingness of the Chinese to actually behave cooperatively. And, and, and we've seen that 
in in the access that the corporates and the banks are getting. We've seen that with them shutting down all the fentanyl labs. We've seen that as of, I think it was October 23, when they stopped doing the near-miss flights uh, with the American jets uh, that were near their border, which was dangerous. And they just, they just ordered them to stop. That's good. That's good. And, you know, okay, the Republicans aren't going to give Biden credit for that. I don't care. Like, the point is that we just need to recognize this is the most important and most dangerous geopolitical relationship in the world, and it is materially better managed today than it was even three months ago. That's a really big deal. And we definitely want to say that, I mean, of all, of everything in our report this year, that was absolutely the most important good news. Nothing else was close. I'll take it. Um, we need all the good news we can yeah. get. Um a lot of our subscribers today are um, writing in about AI um, and they want to get a sense of where you see it headed in 2024. I mean, synthesize some of the the strands that get talked about, because on the one hand, we've talked a lot in the last few months about the potential for AI to disrupt elections in 2024, mis and disinformation, deep fakes. That's in the news this week with Taylor Swift. Um, but also it seems like there's a lot of energy and excitement about, around potential regulation, uh, about uh, public-private sector cooperation on that kind of regulation. What's your sense of how this year plays out for AI? Well, the excitement is not about the regulation. The excitement is about the technology. The excitement is about the application of the technology. And for me, the excitement is about um, the fact that every sector of the economy recognizes how much they can benefit from the application of technology. So you, what you're not getting is a small group of really powerful players saying, we need to stop this. This is a threat to us. Like you're not getting the equivalent of the oil companies saying, uh, we, we've got to apply money to ensure that these renewables don't take off and that people think climate change is fake because this is existential for us. No one thinks that about AI. Every sector of the economy sees that they can reduce waste, increase the ability to do real-time measurements of data, increase human capital, increase productivity, right? Improve measurements of things that they don't have great measurements of so they can manage them more effectively literally every sector of the economy can apply and this is even way. where this is even where ai creates haves and have nots with access yes. to chips with access to yep. tech because the downstream movement is so fast that's right and and i think that um the speed of this technology which is doubling every 6 months and the capabilities of the uh, generative ai models compared to 18 months with moore's law and semiconductors is uh, it's staggering and I mean, GPT-5, which will roll out in the next few months, will make four look like a child's plaything, um, and we'll have incredible opportunities for greater productivity, greater positive disruption in all of the, and I think this will drive a new wave of globalization. I'm that excited about it. So for me, AI is a game changer economically. Um, and if you are not, I personally, I mean, if I were like a hedge fund or a big institutional investor, I would be putting together a fund that just looks at the five corporations in every sector that, are, that, that have the culture and the leadership to most effectively apply AI internally. And I would just invest on in those firms because there are a whole bunch of companies that won't get it as fast and they're screwed. Um, but this is very, very exciting uh, from that perspective. There are negatives, there are risks, of course. And the biggest risk that always comes from new technologies 
is that um, companies are very good at privatizing gains and they are also even better at socializing losses. Uh, and there will be negative externalities from all of these AI advances that the companies won't want to pay for. They'll want to obscure and they'll want to stay away from them. They certainly won't want, don't want to regulate them in ways that constrain them. And, and some of that is about disinformation. Some of that is about using AI models to create weapons and malware and viruses and the rest. And some of it is about changing humanity in ways that are unexpected and dangerous. And that's going to happen really, really fast. So I do think that there are real risks here. Um, I, I see them as smaller than the opportunities, but I spend more time on the risks because I know that the people that are focused on the opportunities um, have enormous amounts of money and power, and they're not going to let that go. They're like dogs with bones because they're also got competitors breathing down their neck that are ready to take them out if they don't focus on it. So I'm not worried about the upside. The upside's coming. The downside, not enough people can take care of, not enough people will deal with. So of course, I'm going to spend more time on that. Mm, makes sense. Um, very quickly, last question uh, from Max Mora, one of our subscribers. And you may have touched on this, but what are you most optimistic about in 2024? Oh, I mean, I'm definitely most optimistic about uh, the, the the downstream impact of AI on everybody's lives. Uh, I think we're already going to start seeing that playing out in ways that are unimaginable, even now in six and 12 months time. I, I, the, the, it's the speed that is so extraordinary. And, and, you know, again, if you're not already thinking about how you should deploy this for your own personal skill set, for amusement and entertainment, but also for as an assistant um, in, in you, the way you engage with the economy in your job, in your workplace with your colleagues, do it fast. Because, you know, when the next generation comes out later this year, you don't want to have to wait to figure that out. Good advice to leave things on. Ian Bremer, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Rob. And that was Ian Bremer, the founder of the Eurasia Group and the president of G Zero Media. Later this week, we're going to stay on the story that we began this episode with. All roads in the Middle East seem to lead back to Iran right now. So we're going to bring on Vali Nasser and Sanam Vakil in Washington and London, respectively. They are two terrific Iran analysts, and they will give us a sense of how Tehran is thinking about the conflict in the Middle East and perhaps what might happen next. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live and Video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. 
a tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.